This is the Marketing Hero Podcast by ClearPivot, turning marketers into heroes. Welcome to the Marketing Hero Podcast. Did you know that we also have a newsletter? That's right, you can join today at clearpivot.com slash newsletter to get monthly emails with our best tips on topics like effective lead generation, creating content that attracts and connects with your prospects, and how to get started with inbound marketing. Sign up for the Marketing Hero newsletter at clearpivot.com slash newsletter for SaaS marketing insights that will move your metrics. Welcome, welcome. I'm your host, Maya Wells. And on today's episode of the Marketing Hero Podcast, we are pleased to present a conversation with Asaf Rotham, CMO of Seeking Alpha. Asaf joins us today from Tel Aviv for a conversation about building an audience with brute force and what it's like to build a B2C marketing machine. With experiences from Seeking Alpha, Wix, Bright Info, and Stamp. Asaf cracks open the stories that will get you thinking about B2C marketing trends, first-party data, and so much more. Asaf Rotham, welcome to the show. Thanks, Maya. Super excited to be here. Let's chat a little bit about marketing. Well, it's great to have you, and I do look forward to learning more about your experiences in marketing. And I've really enjoyed prepping with you in leading up to this interview. But I do want to start out with a question that we like to ask all of our guests, What's your favorite part of your career and how did you figure that out? It's a good question. Um, I'll tell you from a personal level, the the best part of my career is to kind of finally understand what I'm good at and what I like doing. I'm not the kind of person who had this like linear career where he started in marketing like 20 years ago and then became a manager, you know, senior manager, director um, in one line. Um, because online marketing didn't really exist uh, the way we know it 20 years ago. And some because I was very opportunistic and, you know, just jumped on opportunities that I felt could promote me massively in my path to, I didn't know exactly where, but I kind of know now. Um, So I'm at a stage right now where I feel very comfortable in what I do know and what I don't know. Um, And that's the best part of my career is to finally understand, you know, what I'm good at and what I'm comfortable doing, as opposed to just keep guessing and kind of like going into unknown areas, hoping for the best. So what are you really good at? It's also a good question. (laughs) And also, uh, I think this one is easier for me um, to answer. I think I'm fairly good at selling subscription services for consumers, meaning B2C or D2C. Um, Sometimes it's also called now. I really enjoy it. And I think like as a person who leads marketing, you're often tasked with two things. One is to come up with a good story and two, to own revenue. Um, So it's a little bit different in B2B, you know, sales owns revenue. In B2C, marketing owns revenue. Um, We try to do low touch, meaning no interaction with the consumer, but through online methods. and the combination of coming up with a really good story and marketing methods that do everything for a self-service purchase, that's what I do pretty well. It means that I have to understand what's inspiring, what's relevant, what's authentic to connect, to build trust with users. 
but also to understand um, how to create meaningful experiences that people will be willing to pay for. And you mentioned you know what you're also not very good at. What are you bad at? What do you not really like to do and you're not very good at right now? So I think everything in, in marketing, at least for my experiences, comes with an inherent sense of anarchy. In good organization, we keep that anarchy um, within manageable size, meaning it's always good to, it keeps us sharp. It helps us seize opportunities, recognize opportunities. Um, and those are like the two sides of the same coin. So the other side is a little bit um, of that anarchy, meaning people are not, you know, super task oriented and know how to deliver things all the way through. This is something I had to get much better at with my career as I manage bigger and bigger groups. But I'm not a person who loves processes. I understand their value. I think process philosophically is more important than the result. But making sure people are, you know, always have a task at hand and stuff like that is something I don't believe in. And I'm not very good in like micromanaging and making sure all the small tasks happen. I'm much better at recognizing big opportunities and to tell people drop everything. This is what we're going after right now. And how has the reaction been to that when you've had to do that either in your current company or in other places? Do you have an example where you you had to throw a process out the window for a moment to achieve a big opportunity? What was the reaction of your team to that? How did you wrangle that anarchy at the time? And, and what were the results of that? Um, yeah, I'll give you an example that I had in Wix in e-commerce. Um, we were there. I, I led a team, a relatively big team, during uh, the the spectacle of e-commerce and COVID, which means we were in the eye of the storm for most of my duration there. And we had to, you know, that was the end of a year and we had to kind of release a huge project that kind of summarizes the year in e-commerce. That was brutal for all my teammates and, and you know, that was not easy leading them through it. Um, one of the things that I've learned, perhaps the hard way, but it's, it's, it's almost too simple for this to be intuitive. Once you have a huge opportunity, whether it's driven by the market or whether it's just like the company says we're going after that, drop everything off, right? You don't work on small tasks as we're focusing all of our efforts on the bigger ones. Because the worst thing that can happen is for you to miss out on big deadlines, on huge releases because of a couple of small tasks that just got everybody frustrated. And, and, and because when you do that, you go after those big projects, you're going to be running on, you know, there's not going to be a lot of capacity for anything else. So I literally told people, right, if you're not on this project, drop everything. I prefer you guys going to the beach, taking a day off, recharging and coming back fresh and starting something new that I will have to meet because I have no capacity to look at in a week time and understand this in, in some way, you know, hammered or, or, or crashed into um, the main project and derailing it. That does make sense. And in there, you mentioned even in the biggest projects that it's important to recharge. And that's kind of, you know, for those of us here in the United States, a lot of the people listening to this podcast are, you know, Americans. And it's a little foreign to us to hear that because our bosses would probably not say that to us. Do you think that's a uniquely European or Middle Eastern, you know, EMEA type of an approach? I mean, is that something that is unique to you? 
Um, talk to us a little bit about vacation, recharging, you know, how that perspective is different. Um, right. So I think it started even before the pandemic, meaning um, Israeli startups are geared toward typically the U.S. market, which means we have to work crazy hours and kind of align our days. Uh, but you don't really align your day. I mean, you start early and you just finish late and you do it until you burn out. So I was fortunate enough to have seen burnout earlier in my career and to understand that the price of burnout is probably much, much higher um, and comes way sooner than we anticipate when we ask people to work hard. Um, for me, it's way more important to work smart, which means know what you're working on, as opposed to like, let's just, whatever the first task is, let's just jump in. Let's make sure we prioritize. We only have a certain amount of hours a day. You know, you do want to spend some time with family. You want to eat, you want to breathe, you want to have coffee with colleagues. Those things are critical to manage workloads and, and high stress environments, which is the case in startups. Um, so for me, burnout has the, the highest cost. Losing an employee over that is just dumb and, and ineffective. It means you're a bad manager because you didn't see it coming. Typically, when you do see it coming, it's already too late. So I try to kind of take this pledge to myself to be respectful for my employees and remember that not to push anyone too hard, them or myself. Um, so I don't know if it's a cultural thing. I know that there's a lot of jokes about it, you know, from the difference, how Europeans kind of send you like, hey, I'm on a summer vacation. I'll get back to you in, in, in three months. Whereas like <laughs> Americans are like, you know, sorry, I had to leave for one hour to get a kidney transplant and I'll get back to you, but I'm available all the time. <laughs> um, so somewhere in the middle there, um, we all have to be more minded about it. And I think as managers, it's critical, especially after the pandemic, where like work-life balance, all of these things that have blended into this <laughs> ongoing Groundhog Day, where you wake up and you do the same things over and over again until you don't know who you are. Um, so it's even more important right now for us to tell employees, drop everything, go come back another day when you're fresh and, you know, you vented out, recharged. I think that's a, an essential part of today's um, managerial role. So what I'm hearing you say there is it's a mixture of seeing the employees, seeing the team as a human being, as a whole holistic human being that has needs outside of work and, and must fulfill those. And, and not only that, but also combining that with prioritizing the right things. Uh, I heard you say you don't just want to wake up and do the first task on your list because it's the first task on your list. How do you balance the need to prioritize for your teammates with, you know, your desire to see more of the big picture? Do you set the priority and then let your team members figure out the steps to get there? How do you actually accomplish that with your strengths and weaknesses as a manager? The, the short answer is yes, we prioritize together, meaning we do off sites like every six months, um, kind of go for a day or two. I'm talking about specifically for the marketing department. There's also like, you know, company wide uh, priorities. Um, in those off sites, we'll kind of do a quick review of what we've done, what has worked, what hasn't, um, and think like where the big opportunities lie in the foreseeable future. Um, some people have like two and three year plans. I've never seen these, you know, manifest into reality. Um, there's a great 
American philosopher called Mike Tyson. And he said that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Um, <laughs> and I think it's very true. Like when you're in startups, you, it's good to have some roadmap. It's good to know where you're going. It's very important to kind of force the way. It's going to be way more surprising and way more murky than you can imagine. So I think you should take this into account, one, in terms of we need to maintain flexibility and the ability to pivot and move and go after big opportunities when they present themselves. But also like from a team perspective, as I said, let's not put all the firepower on the first thing. Like we need to think about what's gonna happen if you're doing a big sale, what's gonna happen the following week, what happens if that sale doesn't, you know, give you the outcome that you wanted. You always have to have another card to play. Um, so again, from, from a planning perspective, we'll, we'll kind of mark what the biggest plays are and what are possible ways to get there. And then, you know, the domain experts or the, the, the domain managers, um, typically product marketing managers will come up with the plays that they want. Acquisition uh, managers will come up with the plays that they want to do in terms of like bringing new users. And trying to combine them is kind of um, where the biggest upside is, meaning if you can tailor a full experience from the video that promotes it all the way until the, the sign up and then, you know, upgrade into paying, that's the biggest place. That's what I'm like pushing my team always to come up with. Like I want a holistic play, a full flow of the user, show me all the steps. Let's try to also keep it reasonable. I don't believe in like 11 steps, right? It has to be something that people don't linearly just do whatever you tell them. So think about it like video, landing pages, onboarding experience, value, and, and show me, give me a couple of examples and, and yeah, let's, let's just jump on it. You used a phrase when we were talking about startups and building a new audience for a new product, uh, a new service. It was brute force. So you were talking about, you know, you need to start a company by using brute force. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about that. What do you mean by that? And then we're going to talk after that about how marketing and creating the media machine comes after. I actually started in startups in B2B uh, company. And, and I was there, I was there, I think the sixth, the sixth employee, meaning they just came up with a product. And, and like the Israeli textbook of startups, which focuses on B2B says like this, you build an MVP, something that you would be, you wouldn't be ashamed to put uh, and have users start using it. And then the first users are gonna be like friends and families and your own personal network, those kind of things. Then you would put sales development like SDR to, to start having, you know, picking up the phone and that's just brute force. They're gonna call people, they're gonna cold call people and like pull them into scheduling an appointment, you know, most with no show. But if you play the numbers, you'll get, you know, up to dozens of paying customers just by brute force of having people doing cold calls. Um, I think once you've established that you have whatever, a dozen, 20, 50 paying customers, then the, the CEO will take the VP of marketing and tell them, hey, we need to create a lead gen machine. This isn't something that we can scale on cold calls. Um, and, and that's this, the stage where you have to kind of shift your mind about like, let's generate tons of lists that are, you know, anything above terrible is a huge success um, into something 
that people want to use, meaning you're going to have to start telling a story and you have to start building a media machine. A media machine typically means, you know, tons of content. You, you can start with tons. Let's start with content, blog, podcast, um, some sort of communities, um, all these things, all these plays that would eventually lead to inbound audience coming and looking after your product. Um, and, and that's, in my experience, that's the most difficult part is to build that media machine. You need excellent content people, you need excellent market understanding, and you need to always climb up in the category, meaning you always want to go after bigger audiences and those would not necessarily have a direct interest or even would be aware of your niche. So you always want to climb up there and kind of claim the bigger territories in order to bring that audience in. And how is that different from the B2C approach? You mentioned starting with a video. I think that's a, a great place to start. Um, do you start with brute force that way or is it a little bit different? Are you building that marketing machine from the very beginning? Talk to us about that. Um, so in Seeking Alpha is a little bit different because Seeking Alpha um, is not a very young startup. It's almost here for 20 years. Started as like a crowdsourced financial publisher and has been up until um, last year, to be honest. Um, we just started subscriptions three years ago. Um, and up until then, the company was focused on selling media uh, and ads and, and stuff like that. So when I came, I came a year ago, I kind of already had a media machine. And my focus was internal, like inside the company to make sure we want to move from a, you know, a financial publisher to a financial services and financial products kind of company and also kind of shift the way we look at the audience, meaning I don't care how much pay choose we have because we don't sell ads anymore. I care about like how many new users we're bringing in, how many new visitors we're bringing in, how's our SEO and PPC working together. Um, and we didn't really have PPC. We had to kind of build all those things. We had to build a new creative uh, department to, to generate amazing YouTube videos that would make us seem clever and smart and fun just the way we are in reality. So the, the 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 challenge here was different. I inherited a very strong media machine and I enhanced it with creatives and PPC. Um, if I were to start this from day one um, as a financial um, services or products company, the big difference in B2C is the speed of things, meaning we don't work on leads and then need a demo, then there's a no-show and then we schedule. And then, you know, 28-day free trial, negotiation, discounts, all these things that, you know, end up converting into like a paying customer four months down the road. That does not literally exist in B2C. In B2C, everything is today. So by starting, I would start with acquisition machine, meaning paid acquisition. How do we get people to landing pages? How do we get people to engage with our videos and bring them directly into a flow that where they try the product right from the get-go, meaning if they watch the video five minutes afterwards, they should be already playing with our free version of the product. And hopefully within an hour converting. And hopefully still we'll be able to attribute all of that um, on an ongoing basis and then improve it. And then it's more of a problem of having the funds to do it and, and the right people, which is always a problem. Um, 
but it's it's much faster and the feedback loop is is such that you can really improve fast and grow faster um i also like it better but that's like on a side note so you know what that's bringing up for me is thinking about marketing automation and when we were talking before you mentioned that at Seeking Alpha, you don't use a marketing automation platform like a HubSpot, an Acton, Marketo, those types of names. Why is that? What do you do instead? You you must use some sort of automation, right, Asaf? Correct. We, we do use automations, and I'll elaborate in a second. Um, but we do use um, sail through for email automation and, and some, you know, some of the systems that we use, Piano for... Um, the paywall and, and other things we, we to be honest i think like we're in an era where you kind of need to own your data and in order to excel in the game of personalization you really want to have everything owned by yourself because that's how you can really develop your own competitive advantage so some things like sending emails through automated systems is something that we're not going to develop internally. We don't have really any competitive advantage or any edge into doing that. So we just make sure that integrates properly with our system. But everything on site is really critical for me to develop. One, because of privacy issues and data protection, there's there's a lot of things that are kind of, kind of coming into focus. We all know what happened to Facebook um, around those areas. And I don't want to be at the mercy of the data migration between one platform or another, they never give you the same data and, and it's frustrating. Um, and I think their out of the box solutions are excellent, but we're in a stage where we need to invest in our infrastructure and give ourselves a competitive edge um, in personalization, in the ability to match the customer journey with the right offer at the right time. Um, and again, while there are legitimate solutions out there i think if you take data and privacy into as, as key considerations you need to develop it on your own i'm super pleased to say that we're going to launch the first phase of that we've been working on it for a few months and this week it's going to go live so i'm extremely excited to see it finally coming also what once you invest in infrastructure it's kind of hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel it requires a lot of devs work um, but I think it will pay off massively because once you have the basis, anything that we'll add now will just give us a bigger competitive advantage in everything we do in Seeking Alpha from the insights on the onsite into campaigns that we'll take out and better do on Google, YouTube, Outbrain and Tabula, everywhere we're gonna go, we're gonna have massive amounts of data and insights from our own um, analysis. Can you tell me what it actually looks like to accomplish this data-driven way of marketing? I would love to just hear how that flow works at Seeking Alpha. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you actually implement those ideas? Sure. So in Seeking Alpha, I think one of the amazing things about the company and its crowdsource approach is that we have almost 200 advisory services, meaning those are analysts that give you specific recommendations and access to their portfolios in almost every investing strategy or theme. If you like growth stocks, if you want dividend stocks, energy, defense, cannabis stocks, ETFs, you name it, we have an expert that's going to help you pick the best investment 
for every um, investing cycle that there is. However, when you have 200, it's kind of difficult to think like, who do I promote? Are we gonna go with most popular? Are we gonna go with the hot hand? Um, I mean, there's always a bull market out there. We've had like a very brutal start of the year, especially since the war in Ukraine started. However, energy stocks and shipping stocks have skyrocketed. Um, so we're pretty unique in having a hot hand nearly for every market condition. Um, however, a most popular or a hot hand is not necessarily what every investor would like to be offered. So we infuse um, our marketing widgets with data science. And then we track the user's digital behavior, uh, from which we can infer what's the, you know, the the highest or or the best service that we can offer them at a certain time period. Meaning, instead of just playing the hot hand or the most popular, both are by the way excellent benchmarks that data science needs to be. So we're going to be offering seven to fourteen different services based on you know your personalized. Uh, behavior on Seeking Alpha and kind of the emails that you're reading. And that's how we connect all the, all those little dots into a clear and, and uh, actionable insight that we're going to be offering you. Um, and from everything that we've seen, this massively beats pure segmentation or just playing most popular or the hot hand. Um, so that's how we kind of try to tie everything together from, you know, the inventory we have, the behavior of the user, um, all the way through the assets that we're going to promote, both on the website and on email, making sure that you've seen or clicked or closed that we won't be nagging you further. Uh, but in the end, uh, we've seen you know tremendous promise in this, and, and we're just getting started. Like we're just building out those things, and it's going to work much much better. In once we do four, five, ten iterations on that. So there you have it, marketing hero folks. It pays to be a data nerd. I think that we can all see the results of that personalization and and sending the right offer at the right time. I think that's what we're all trying to get towards in our digital marketing lives. So it sounds like the name of the game here is taking big opportunities, going after them with everything you have, owning your own data, and creating the systems to make all of that happen. Would you say that's a good characterization of what you have going on right now? I think it's a perfect, um, you know, reduction of things to to a place that is, you know, manageable to conceive. I always believe, like in marketing, if you kind of get all the basics right, and it sounds, it sounds too easy, but like it's not easy at all. When you do it, you, there's always like pressures. There's always compromise. There's a lot of things that are happening on a daily basis, especially B two C, which is you know fast paced environment. Um, but if you are able to keep your eyes on the ball and kind of connect those big dots, you'll be in a good spot. You can be excellent, right? Once you double down on that. But connecting those dots is not an easy task um, and, and requires a lot of long-term projects, which is something that is just difficult to manage and make sure that people remember the value of those things as the both glory. Let's run another sale. You can always do And just to, to be clear, we're not at that point yet. I think we've added a lot of the ingredients. All are progressing very nicely, but we're probably a few months until we'll be able to kind of take pride in our machine, how it looks like, how it operates on a daily basis. 
Well, it sounds like there is a great leader at the head of all of that at Seeking Alpha, which is you. Thank you so much for joining us today, all the way from Tel Aviv. We do appreciate you uh, coming on so late in the evening to talk to us here on the Marketing Hero Podcast. And we do hope to follow what happens at Seeking Alpha and see that marketing machine start to work. Thanks a lot, Maya, for having me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the Marketing Hero Podcast by ClearPivot. Be sure to join us next time. For more information, visit www.clearpivot.com.